The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Take a little bit of time. Feel free to adjust your body. Say hello to the folks around you if you'd like. It's okay to stand if you want to stretch out your legs. Welcome, everyone. So I want to first thank uh, Rebecca Bradshaw, who I'm sure some of you were here last Wednesday, a wonderful teacher from the East Coast, who's now leading a retreat for um, a bunch of folks out at Kawananiya, a retreat center just a little bit outside of town. And they'll be ending their retreat on Friday. And the person she's teaching that retreat with, Chaz DeCapua, will be teaching this Friday. So if you want to hear another wonderful teacher, feel free to come back on Friday night, 7 to 9. What's his title of his talk, Trish? Oh, great. Using the body to understand the three characteristics, the changing nature, the impersonal nature, and the unsatisfactory nature of conditioned experience. So, but we're uh, working with Ajahn Tushito's book, and this topic for this week is self-acceptance and equanimity. And many of you know who've been around or have been studying the Buddhist teachings know that equanimity is a, a useful concept and also our direct experience of where the practice goes. But we have to have a lot of humility about that we might not really know what the experience of humility is or the experience of equanimity is. Because a lot of us, when we hear that word equanimity, we interpret it as mean, well, I just don't care, being indifferent in some way. But think about what equanimity would be like if the mind were hyper-aware, really alert, really sensitive, really feeling what's going on, but not confused by what we're feeling. Well, it's just a feeling. See, what gets in the way of a deeper kind of equanimity, the kind of equanimity that comes out of insight or wisdom, is that in our conventional mind or ordinary mind, it feels really dependent on sense experience for having a satisfactory moment or a satisfactory life. Like how much pleasure, how much interesting, good experiences, and how many of those bad experiences have I been able to avoid? But equanimity, a deeper kind of equanimity, is somehow realizing that happiness or freedom or release, liberation, it isn't about what the particular experiences are. That's why in Buddhism it's very provocative, even on an intellectual level, to hear you know, that we're interested in an unconditioned, unconditional happiness. 
or unconditional love. So it's something that doesn't come and go depending on the particular conditions of the moment. I might have a, be having a good day, or I might be living in a country I trust, and then, oh, now I'm living in a country that I don't trust. So I guess like the ease maybe we felt at some point, and now we don't feel that ease. Oh, that's a conditioned ease, right? It was conditioned on the idea that I'm living in a place I trust. And now maybe some of you feel I'm living in a place I don't trust, so I'm not at ease. So I'm not saying that that ease you had before was an ease, but it was a conditioned ease, meaning it was dependent on the idea that this world, this country, this whatever is safe or is just or is, you know, whatever. It's the same thing. So and in many ways, we see that whatever kind of stability we feel in the moment, in the day, whatever kind of ability we have to be open, it's very interesting. Is that a conditioned arising or is it unconditioned? Can it be shaken? You know, whatever good place we've gotten to with our heart and mind, feeling happy, feeling trusting, feeling that it's safe to be open. How stable is that? Or is it dependent? So when people don't like me, then it all goes away. Or when things don't go the way I want, then it all goes away. So the first thing in terms of understanding equanimity is just to be able to conceive to some degree of a balance, an openness, a clarity, a love, a sense of understanding that doesn't blow in the wind. You know, in Buddhism we talk about the eight worldly winds: praise and gain, uh, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, and pleasure and pain. Right? So these are the dualities of just normal human existence. And we're constantly getting pushed around. We have a pleasant moment and we have an unpleasant moment. We're getting praise from people we want praise from. We're feeling insulted or blamed by people we, who we would like to respect us. Or We have success. We have failure. So we're all cycling through this. Some of us, through causes and conditions are getting more of the positive end of those eight winds. Some of us, certainly at some periods of our lives, are getting more of the unpleasant end of those eight worldly winds, right? But the interesting question is, in terms of what the safety we're really looking for in life, I don't know about you, but the safety I'm looking for is no matter what the winds are, I'm looking for a heart, a way of being that doesn't feel threatened or pushed around by the worldly winds, by ups and downs, gain and loss, fame, blame, success, praise. I mean, it's funny how we kind of like the intensity of gain and loss and praise and blame as long as we're getting enough of the, ho- the positive end of it. But as soon as we're more at the losing end of those eight worldly winds, then we really want out. But wanting out 
like wanting out of life because it's not fair. This person left me. I lost this job. I didn't get the promotion. The world, you know, the powers that be are oppressing us. Then we want out of the conditioned world. But that's also being caught in the conditioned world, right? That's, a, that's part of being pushed away. So the Buddha names that as just another kind of craving, right? First we crave that I want to be the one who, no, who negotiates the conditioned world in such a way that I get everything that I want and I don't get anything I don't want. And when that doesn't happen, then we want to go home. Then we want out. I'm done with this. This isn't fair. This is a setup. Haven't we felt that way about life generally and about certain situations in life specifically? Like, I'm out of here. And then imagine, I mean, people who are even less privileged than some of us in the room. Like, how much doesn't feel fair? doesn't seem right. So on the one hand, you know, we have to navigate this conditioned world. But even as we're navigating it, we set aside at least some time to consider, to contemplate being in this conditioned world without being tied to the ups and downs of the conditions. Because we can, even on an intellectual level, we can get a sense of the happiness, the freedom of being in the conditioned world of intimate relationships, having to earn a living, trying to navigate power dynamics at work, in society, all the different communities we inhabit, our families of origin, our parents, siblings, right? There's all this sort of dynamic where we're beasts dancing with in power games. I mean, that's so much of human existence all in all places, right? We're sort of navigating power, negotiating power, struggling around power. And so to how to be willing to be in the conditioned realm because remember, as the Buddha says, wanting to get out is just another kind of craving. It's just the same as wanting to succeed in the power games. Wanting to be done with the power games is just more craving, more struggle. Like, how do I get out? Where's a cave? But who's going to feed me? Or does suicide work? Or do you just end up in another body, in another place, time and place, having to deal with the same stuff? Right? Except now you have an imprint in your mind of checking out, which is not a good habit when you're living to not want to be living, right? When you're already in a body, have a personality, have duties and responsibilities, and not wanting to be alive or having a life or having a body or having responsibilities. But that becomes the imprint the more we cultivate that craving. Just like wanting to be always on the top of the heap, wanting things to go my way, that's, not, that's also not an easy way to navigate the conditioned world. And the Buddha taught a middle way between bending the world to my will so I get just what I want and I don't get what I don't want or giving up. Right? He taught a middle way, which is basically, just in simple terms, 
being right in the middle, willing to be intimate, right in the middle of our lives, conditioned lives, where things are coming and going, where there are innumerable causes and conditions swirling, right, that are affecting us, that we're part of, that we're also affecting, but not attached. And then we get a sense of where equanimity is pointing us. Now, we all know equanimity, but usually we first understand equanimity by just getting a little distance from the difficulty of the conditioned world. Right? Now, isn't it true that if you, when you leave your job scene and when you're not around people who are pushing your buttons and you don't have too many duties and responsibilities, we just naturally have more equanimity in the mind, more balance, greater sense of impartiality. So the first place we learn about equanimity is when we have, when we have the good fortune to be able to retreat what's difficult in life. You know? Can you imagine? All of a sudden, you go home, and there's a car waiting for you, your bags are already packed, and somebody you really trust says, uh, your boss knows, and it says it's okay, you have two weeks, we're going to the airport, we're going to fly, you've got this place on a beach somewhere, or whatever you would like, you know, perfect place, just the right food, no responsibilities, not tied into the world. Everybody who needs to know knows you're going to be away and totally okay about it. You either have somebody there with you or you don't, depending on what would be easier. Right? It'd be pretty easy knowing that everything's taken care of. And the cat will be fed and you know the house plants will be watered. It'd be pretty easy to be equanimous for those two weeks. You know, we had all the toys, all the right things there to entertain us. Then we, but the key would be like when we have those moments, because we all have those moments, relatively speaking, right, where things are pretty easy for us, just like we have moments that are relatively challenging. So instead of equanimity, there's a lot, a lot of agitation or reactivity. But when we have moments that are relatively easy for us, the important thing is to notice that experience of equanimity, like, oh, this is what the mind's like when it's not reacting to the conditions that are showing up. I'm at home. I had a difficult day, but now I'm at home. I have my tight pants off. You know, I'm in my pajamas. I'm in bed. I have my favorite, you know, hot beverage or whatever it is for you, favorite entertainment, whatever that might be. But to not just indulge in that rather easy, pleasant experience, but to notice the natural balance that the mind can experience. Now, as meditators, we can go even further because every once in a while we can have a good set where the mind, the awareness, the attention has retreated as instead of reacting to the body sensations, the pain in the knee, the stiffness in the back, or reacting to people moving in the meditation hall, or reacting to the thoughts we have about what we forgot to do or what we have to do tomorrow, sometimes when we're having a good sit, the mind retreats 
And it's basically, the attention is basically paying attention to the quietness, the retreatedness, the wholeness, the peace of the mind itself. And so that's like an even more profound vacation or nice evening, right? And then, again, the same thing, though, this is really important. When we're in that quiet place in a good set, to notice, to be aware, like we're, we want to wake up and notice this is a mind, this is the mind of non-reactivity. I mean, relatively speaking, there might be a little reactivity like wanting it to last is a kind of reaction, right? Or a little irritation like off in the distance, because the mind's pretty retreated, but off in the distance you notice somebody moving. Or off in the distance you feel that you have to go to the bathroom. I just, I notice I have to go to the bathroom, right? And it's like, it's there in the distance. Now, if I put my attention on it, it could become unbearable, right? You know how that is. But when you don't bring your attention, when your attention has retreated from what would otherwise be agitating, then it's not so much of a problem. Do you know that, right? So. In a good sit, by definition, the definition of a good sit is the mind's retreated from the sense gates, from what is being seen and heard and thought and sensed as body sensation. The mind is retreated from that. So in a way, the attention is aware of the mind, the space of the mind, the silence of the mind, if it's a really good sit, the emptiness of the mind, the non-doing in the mind, the relative or the temporary absence of wanting to do something, so the contentedness of the mind, that's actually the object of awareness. Not the in and out breath or whatever other meditation object you might have begun with, but as the mind collects itself with the initial meditation object, like awareness of the breath or awareness of the whole body, then the collectedness Right, the mind that's not going to a lot of objects but is just with one object, then at some point, while you're aware of the breath, what's actually now now the actual sensations of breathing in is off a little bit off on the periphery. And what's in the forefront of attention is the simplicity and the collectedness and the wholeness and the stability of the mind itself. So as you're breathing in, the mind knows, the wisdom in the mind knows, yeah, I'm breathing in. But what it's really paying attention to is the stability of the mind, the peace of the mind, the non-reactivity of the mind. And then at some point you want to notice, especially the non-reactivity, the peace of the mind not being pushed around by conditions. So... In Buddhist practice, the way the Buddha taught, that's the first experience of real equanimity. It's not stable because as soon as I lose my concentration, as soon as I'm kind of in a more normal state of awareness, I can be just as reactive to the news or to what I think my partner thinks about me or to my tight pants or to whatever might, might be pleasant or unpleasant in my experience. But while I'm in that really withdrawn place, and sense experience, in a sense, is at a distance, right? Because I'm in this, now I'm not on a physical vacation, I'm on a mental vacation. 
because the mind has retreated from its sensitivity to sight, to sound, to touch, and even to thought. There's still thoughts, but they're more like faint or at a distance because we're in a concentrated state. And it's like, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. This is the peace of non-reactivity. This is the peace of a mind, of heart, not being pushed around by what comes and goes in life. But I know, once I open my eyes, once I start to move around, once I'm a human being with relationships and responsibilities, I'm probably going to lose a lot of this equanimity, this non-reactivity. But it's made an imprint in the mind now, that experience of equanimity. And now the mind just can't help, and it's good, can't help itself to be interested in non-reactivity. Because it's such an such a, um, unforgettable, the Buddha actually talks about this as the unforgettable taste of freedom. The unforgettable taste of freedom from reactivity. Freedom from being pushed around by our circumstances, the conditions that come and go in our lives. It's unforgettable. So even as we're moving about, we've lost our concentrated state. We're back in our normal mind, normal life situations. But we have this imprint of having tasted non-reactivity. So now the question, without concentration, without my mind retreating from sense experience, is there a way to be non-reactive right in the middle of everything? So now we're interested in the equanimity that arises from wisdom as opposed to the equanimity that has arisen from the mind retreating or from concentration. They're related. The feeling is actually similar. One is just not very stable, and the other becomes really stable. So let's talk now. I'll talk a little bit about the equanimity that comes from wisdom, and then I'll open it up for discussion because probably in your life you've run into both of these kinds of equanimity. We all know the equanimity that comes from wisdom because some of you, when you were four, <clears throat> there were all kinds of things that frightened you. Maybe you were afraid of dogs when you were a little kid. <clears throat> or maybe you were afraid of, you know, whatever. I was afraid of lima beans because my parents would make us eat them. And peas, too. I'd hide them under the table. No, I like lima beans and peas. Luckily, they didn't. <laughs> the upbringing wasn't so toxic that I lost my taste for vegetables. I got it back. But... But now, you know, it's like I'm okay with that, some of those things. Because it's like, like I used to be, I used to be much more self-conscious and defensive around people not liking me. But now that I'm 58, there have been a lot of times I've been around people who either didn't trust me or didn't like me or whatever. Just It might have nothing to do with me. Sometimes, of course, it did. But, you know, push back whatever. But I've learned, I mean, I still don't like it. It's still really unpleasant. But I'm a lot more relaxed when I'm around somebody who doesn't like me, who's obviously upset with me or doesn't think I'm a good person. I mean, really, that's what really gets me is when 
people don't think I'm a good person. <laughs> I mean, don't they get it? I, I'm a, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so we have these places in our life where there was a lot of suffering, and the suffering was so intolerable that we started to pay attention, and over time, with some deep but painful reflection, we realized that, you know what, it might be better to just accept that sometimes it's like this and it's really painful, but I don't need to react to the pain. Right? See, that's the equanimity that comes from wisdom. It, it doesn't mean I'm not feeling what I'm feeling. That if I had to retreat from the feeling, that would be the equanimity that comes from retreating, from seclusion. But now we're talking about equanimity with exposure, with intimacy, with being really right in the middle, sensitive. So think about, as I'm talking, I'll talk a little bit more, but think about places in your life where uh, <coughs> things are really still intense. You're feeling something that's intense for you, really there in it, but you've learned to somehow sustain, not perfectly, but much more, a, a sense of space, a space of forgiveness, a space of patience, a space of understanding. I was just looking at some folks that I know have grown children. This is a good place to look, even if they're just teenagers, but especially if they're older, where they're making their own life choices now. And some of those choices you disagree with. I've talked to people a lot just about these sort of things, and you know they talk about going to take care of the grandkids, but totally disagreeing with how they're raising their kids. The, their children are raising their kids, the, the grandparents' grandkids. And like, you could decide you got to fix them, their, you know, or change their parenting strategy, or you could learn how to be equanimous, how to feel like you might be seeing a train wreck in slow motion, so you think. And you may be right, or you may be wrong, but that's what you see, a train wreck happening in slow motion. Like if they continue to raise their kids in this way, you know, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. <clears throat> but you could have, you can imagine, right, having enough wisdom, enough space in the mind that really gets where your responsibility is and where it isn't. And to really those places where it's not your responsibility, to be really okay about that. And the places where you have some responsibility, you're really okay with that. To say what you can say in the little corners where it's appropriate, in the ways that it's appropriate, and to really hold back. Right? And you can imagine, if you haven't learned that lesson, how much suffering you might set in motion until you finally do learn that lesson. Right? Some of you probably know that experience with older children, right? And how we, you know, people with kids have to learn to let go. And it's the same with a lot of us in places that we have responsibilities, you know, where we have to gracefully let go or we suffer. Like one of the things in the conditioned world that we don't have control over is our aging body, right? So we can either develop equanimity or our life 
the nimbleness of our body, the tonedness of our body can be ripped away from us. But one way or another, it's going to change, either with a heart, a mind that has a lot of equanimity about the aging process, or a mind that is fighting tooth and nail to maintain that youthful look, that nimble body, that nimble mind, right? So what is it going to be? And this is the thing. We have every incentive to develop this kind of wisdom. What the Buddha taught, I mean, it might seem esoteric or kind of out there, but it is really basic human common sense that without developing equanimity, first, by just getting more skillful at how to retreat, that's just basic survival because it's that refreshment of retreating from what's agitating. If we don't do that, I mean, that's what deep sleep is about. It's kind of built into our genes for at least a few minutes every night or almost every night to drop in this place where for a little bit of while when we're in deep sleep, this is not true with the dream level of sleep, but when we're, when we're in deep sleep for those few minutes or however, I'm not sure exactly how long it is on average, but we're not a mind being pushed around by condition conditions, right? The mind has sort of dropped so into itself that it's not affected by conditions. Thoughts don't push us around when we're in deep sleep. Sensations don't push us around when we're in deep sleep, right? But then once we're back to dreaming, then we're back in, I mean, it's a slightly different condition state, but you're totally pushed around by what you're thinking in the dream, what's happening in the dream. You're reacting very much like you do and waking life, right? So we need that skill of retreating, but then we're always getting screwed, basically, when we get pulled back into the exposure to causes and conditions, circumstances of our lives. And one more time, we're, we've got a mind that's getting pushed around. So that really inspires us to listen to someone like the Buddha who says, And there's a way to realize an unconditioned happiness, an unconditioned freedom, an unconditioned equanimity. So we're waking up to a mind, a space of the mind, an open space of the mind, a wise space of the mind, a loving space of the mind that doesn't get pushed around by what comes and goes. And you sense this, like maybe even at that last bit of the sit where I suggested you open your eyes and let's say you had a little momentum from the first 30 minutes of the sit. And then you might have noticed like now you're sort of more in a more normal conscious state because often when we open our eyes, some of the stillness of the concentration will go away because you see people and kind of remember, oh yeah, I'm a human being, I've got a life here. So some of those thoughts start coming back up. But sometimes when we've been having a good sit, it's like sensing that, that kind of space that's okay to feel the sensations in the body. Not afraid of the thought about Thursday and what I have to do or what didn't get done today. A sense of everything belonging or even more profoundly, a sense that everything is already happening on its own. 
So the world is what it is. You wouldn't want to call it perfect, but it is what it is. And and there's there's this momentum or whatever you want to call it. Like even in our personalities, there's a momentum, a force to respond, to do. I don't have to actually, like you can check when we end at 9 o'clock, you'll see you don't have to get yourself up and out of the building and on your bike or in your car or wherever. You'll see that it will just happen. I mean, you could force yourself to not do it, but that too would just be something naturally happening. So part of equanimity is the deepening of this insight that what is happening here, both internally in terms of my thought process and emotional processes, and externally in terms of everything else that's moving and dancing here. In Buddhism, we like to say this is nature, not self. Right? It's the causes and conditions that lead to the thinking in here and the emotions here and everything else that's moving out here. It's already in motion. It already, the causes and conditions that are sort of making things the way they are, they're all re- that's already set in motion. So part of this deepening of equanimity that comes from wisdom, in Buddhism we say it arises because the mind sees more and more clearly the way it is. Oh, this is how it is. Everything is happening on its own. Everything that's moving is nature, not self, not somebody doing something, although that's our conventional language. That's okay as conventional language. But the direct and immediate seeing, experience of it, experiencing of it isn't like it's you or it's me. It's just those causes and conditions happening. And the more the mind sees that changing nature, that impersonal nature, that any kind of grasping is suffering, is stressful, the more the mind releases its grip and into the space of equanimity. Equanimity is the space of the mind, the wisdom of the mind, the love in the mind, that can be around agreeable and disagreeable experiences without having a problem with being around agreeable and disagreeable experiences, right? It's like something painful arises. The mind, the wisdom of the mind knows this is a painful experience. And it's like there's a sense of space of equanimity. Yeah, sometimes it's painful like this. And then that goes. Sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes it's neutral. Sometimes life is really hard to bear. Sometimes life is really beautiful. Sometimes life is really ambiguous and confusing. I don't even know if it's good. But you see, this is a radical shift from the sense of my happiness is dependent on the conditions to a realization that happiness is dependent on letting go of attachment to sense experience. And that's really good to be able to hold that idea because it will help you understand what this practice is all about. We're moving from a normal human being who thinks his or her or its happiness, their happiness is a function of what's happening, sense experience, to 
realizing a way of being where happiness, peace, freedom is unconditioned. It doesn't come and go dependent on the particular circumstances. So now, before I end and open it up for discussion, let's check. We all have a mind here, a heart, or whatever you want to call this sort of space of knowing, the space of being here, right? So is there, let's just say, is there something for us right now with this heart, this mind, is there something to trust or rest back into right here, a kind of peace, a kind of space, wise space, loving space, that's already, in a sense, okay, profoundly, deeply okay with what is. So it's, so in that space, then now we're still sensitive to the conditioned world, right? We haven't like lost the capacity to feel emotion or see sights or hear sounds or think thoughts or be aware of sensations. And then that space of equanimity, its relationship to sense experiences, this is how it is. This is just a sight being seen, a thought being heard, I mean, a thought being thought, sound being heard, sensation being felt. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes it's unpleasant. Can this be okay that it, in this particular moment the conditions are arising, they're like this? Can that be okay? Yeah. Like from that point of view of wisdom, unconditional love, yeah. I can be loving. I can be inclusive. I can allow this to be because struggling with it doesn't help. Thinking it should be other than the way it is right now doesn't help. What helps is to really let it in and you see that really frees up the personality to respond appropriately because now the personality isn't responding from the place of being dependent. The personality, what we say, what we do, what we think, it responds from the place of being independent, not attached. So then it can respond with love and compassion fiercely, beautifully, nimbly, creatively, because it doesn't, it's not trying to manipulate conditions to get what it wants. Because it's already okay when the world's a mess, when the world's beautiful, when the world is neutral. It's in an it's in a sense resting in an unconditioned space. Now that's presumably the mind of a fully awake being. But we know the difference between being really attached to conditions and being slightly less attached, less pushed around by conditions, in moments when not pushed around much at all by conditions, right? So we can imagine getting more and more along that spectrum. Like they say in the Bible, being in the world, but not of the world having a body, having a life, having relationships, having passion to make the world a better place, but not dependent on it becoming a better place, but totally committed to making a better place. right? Because as soon as I get dependent, like it's got to get better, then I'm dealing with attachment and fear. right? Like what happens if it doesn't get better? 
Oh, it's got to get better. And then we think anybody in the way of it getting better, we can justify doing all kinds of things. Got to kill them. Got to get rid of them. <laughs> right? And then we end up with a world just like this, with that kind of thinking. So now I'll open it up. We have about 15 minutes. It'd be really nice to hear from some of you. Of course, any questions you have about what I've said, but also any experiences from your own life you'd like to share with the group about equanimity, what's in the way of equanimity, these two types of equanimity, the kind that comes from seclusion and the kind that comes from wisdom. And remember, you have to point the mic right at your mouth like this. And are we recording tonight, Alan? Yeah. So just remember we're recording tonight, and you can modify what you say, knowing that it's going to be on the Internet. Anybody want to begin? I'm Nancy. I want to thank you for what you've said tonight because I, like a whole lot of us, uh, am subject to the pervasive need to resist in effective ways. And I spend an awful lot of time trying to figure out what is the best way to resist. And you all know what I mean. So thank you for that because I'm going to find that equanimitous spot. Yeah. Thank and, you. And then let the response come out of that. And it will be what it, your response will be what it will be. It will be an act of generosity because you don't need to respond because you're equanimous. So when you do respond, when you do engage, intervene, it's a gift to the world. It will be as effective as it is. But with equanimity, you'll see whether it's effective or not because you have an unbiased mind. And so the next time your heart intervenes, shows up, responds, it will have learned something from the last time it responded. So we actually get more intelligent about how we engage because of the equanimity. Yeah, thanks, Nancy, for sharing that. Who's next? Yeah, Trish. Trish is also our program host tonight. So afterward, if you have questions, you can check in. So actually, for as long as I can remember, it's been very difficult for me to wake up in the wintertime because of the darkness and all that. And I've tried lights and everything, and nothing's worked. Um, but this winter, I've noticed that um, instead of waking up in complete dread and fear and just wanting to stay under the covers and close my eyes and try to go back to sleep, I've been able to wake up and kind of grade it on a scale of one to five and go, okay, um, we're at a four today. Let's see what happens. And, you know, everybody always says, you know, it just takes putting your foot on a floor and you're fine, but it takes me about 15 minutes to get going, and then the, then the dread goes away. Um, and so uh, something flipped this winter that I could remove myself from it and wake up in the morning and go, oh, wow, yeah, today's a five, but it's just this morning and it'll be okay in about 15 minutes. I'll go feed the dogs, do what we can. And by the time I get to work, I'm usually okay. So it's the, it's never, I mean. And I think it's just a, a natural fruit of your practice, Trish, because just to evaluate the day, like that's a Dharma trick, because to kind of evaluate how the morning is, oh yeah, this is a four, the mind has to step back and be in this more neutral, equanimous mode to go, yeah, I know what a 10 is, 
and I know what a 1 is. I forget how your scale works. But this is there. You're already, to look at it that way, you don't feel, because if you were totally overwhelmed, like, no, it can't be this way, you couldn't. That's different than stepping back and looking at it. So that's the thing is, it's so interesting. That's a good, such a good example of seeing how equanimity, the wisdom creeps in in these little, almost imperceptible ways that it makes a big difference, like Trish is sharing. Yeah. Thanks, Trish. I'd like to go next. Lewis. Nice to have you back. Lewis was in. Oh, great. Okay, great. I'm sorry. Um, my name's Adam. Um, I was just reminded of a period in my past when I had made my husband uh, terribly angry with me. Um, I had done something. He was very angry with me. And um, there would be periods where he just needed to kind of yell at me. And um, it was one of those periods where I was very grateful that I had begun my meditation practice because I was able to sit there and listen. And when he would say hurtful things, that I would be able to take that in and not react and say a hurtful thing in return. And it's that calm to listen and go, what, ow, but to let it go. And then um, w without that um, calm, without that distance, you know, I don't think that we would have been able to recover from his anger. Um, so I've been very, very grateful for um, that experience of equanimity. Mm, thanks, Adam. I was about to say, Lewis just got back from Africa a couple weeks ago. Well, it's actually been a month. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, uh, I'd like to e express my gratitude to all of you in the community who uh, supported that journey. Um, I've been saying over and over again since I got back that it was a very heart-lifting and heart-wrenching experience, uh, which uh, even though I went thousands of miles away from here, there was a way where the reality there and the reality here was right in my face in ways that were very challenging, and I would say re-stimulating, because I was, on the one hand, witnessing the beauty and the power of the people, and also witnessing their oppression and the ways that, that they're suffering unnecessarily. So, you know, there's a lot of wealth in the ground which is being taken out. Um, and at the same time, there's horrendous roads. Uh, one young woman that was in the village where I lived was pregnant and having uh, contractions. The baby was not in a good position. And they said they couldn't treat her in the clinic in the village, so she was sent to another village on a motorcycle, which is the only most effective way to get from one village to another because the roads are like dry riverbeds. 
that if water was running over them, it would be white water or waterfalls. So she went to the next village, which is where a lot of uh, diamonds and gold are being mined and making the water toxic. And so she got there, and they said they couldn't help her there and sent her to the next village. And when she got there, they told her that they needed to induce labor. And as a consequence, she and the baby died. And so it was hard to witness at the same time wealth and poverty in such a conflicting way where you could see the results of that. And then to come back home, this home, and walk into what was happening here, you know, right before uh, the inauguration, and I'm being very re-stimulated. My historical trauma is being very re-stimulated. And so I find, I keep finding that I used to be able to like short circuit uh, my rage. And now it's like a real struggle to keep myself from going there. And I have to keep, uh, I have to stay in my body and witness what's happening and keep reminding myself who I am really. And there's a way where, you know, that message, it can be kind of intellectual, but I think I have to, like, go to a place of saying who I really am cannot be harmed or altered by anything or anybody. And that... Yes, I have ancestors that went through a tremendous struggle and dealt with impossible situations. And I feel somehow felt that they needed to live another day or struggle through whatever it was because somehow they thought we were coming later on and they had to do something in the present moment that passed life on. So... It is a real struggle, and it's at times very tiring and requires that I insist that I rest or I step back from situations like maybe going to Standing Rock because I know emotionally I can't handle that. And I need to stay close to people, you know, like a lot of the young pe- younger artists and activists that I mentor and help them in the most grounded way I can be, but it's work, and there's something about the challenge of now that can also strike me as being a gift. (laughs) I mean, it's not always pleasant, but maybe it's a matter of having lived long enough where I realize that Something in the moment that is very unpleasant the next year or 10 years later can be looked at in a totally different way. Like, oh, that was a gift to have gone through that, lived through that, learned through that, 
because it was good for me and I can also share it with family, community, strangers because there is a real way where we do all belong to one another, are accountable to one another, are actually intimately connected and it matters what we do as individuals because our individuality is connected to everything and everybody. Huh? Mm. It's not easy, but it's ours. Yeah. And I think that, that sense of ownership of reality, that's what I was saying earlier on, like when the pain gets really intense, there's going to be a strong tendency for people either to really like fight back which is exhausting, and anger generally begets anger, or to give up, which doesn't do anything, right? And that's the, that's the key. And you, I mean, you said a lot of things that I think are really important. The other point I just want to highlight it, of what you were saying, Lewis, was just how important it is for people who are navigating intense conditions that are stimulating a lot, like you were talking about being re-traumatized, just in your experience, it's so important to, uh, to understand and get some skill about seclusion, whether it's sleeping more. I mean, it's really practical, but retreating, not going to Standing Rock, you mentioned as an example. And uh, it's like we have to know when to retreat so the mind remembers, oh yeah, it's possible for this heart to be aware and non-reactive. And then we can go on to live another day and to re-engage because it's like we remembered, like I can live with that idea of including everything belongs, right? That you said at the end. But we have to rediscover that. Like we have to reawaken that, that insight, that felt sense that I can actually trust this crazy world. I mean, that's, can you? I mean, we have to get to that point because we're not very skillful about how we go forward unless we're coming into that place at least some of the time every day. I can trust the craziness of the world. And that's what I really heard you saying right at the end of your, your comments. Thanks so much, Lewis. It was really great to hear that. And it's 9 o'clock, so we need to put down the words. So we'll just sit for a few seconds together nice to appreciate our time. Just take a couple breaths. Sensing a way of being open in this great swirl of our internal and external experiences. Is it okay to be soft? Is it okay to feel? Is it okay to love? And so may we all live in a way that supports the deepest healing, the arising of justice, and real peace. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, 
www.commongroundmeditation.org.